Here's what YouTube TV really means. And is Martin Scorsese too risky for Hollywood? Forget about it. How'd you like that title? Uh, I'm telling you, we should just get in the title business. <laughs> this is episode 59 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I am Mark Ramsey. And I am Tom Asacker. Tom, here's what YouTube TV really means. It was inevitable. It was inevitable that along would come this thing called YouTube TV. Here we thought all this time that YouTube was out to replace TV, not to integrate with it. And surprise, surprise, not really. It's been coming forever. YouTube is finally getting into regular TV. This is uh, from Bloomberg Businessweek. Uh, and it's been in uh, the big headline all week long. For $35 a month, starting sometime this spring, subscribers to YouTube TV will be able to watch their, uh, the top four broadcast networks, ABC, NBC, Fox, and CBS, and 35 or so of their affiliated cable channels, including, notably, ESPN, Disney Channel, MSNBC, National Geographic, and Fox News. Plus, YouTube TV will give subscribers a DVR tool for recording shows and unlimited storage space in the cloud. It goes away after nine months, but it's still good. They'll be able to watch it. This is a mobile-first strategy, so they'll be able to watch their YouTube TV on smartphones, tablets, laptop computers, anything they want, and, of course, be able to beam it to uh, uh, a traditional television uh, through uh, um, the Google gadgets and so on. So this is interesting, Tom. Mm -hmm. um, what was your take on this? Why? <laughs> first of all, Tom, let's back up. Okay. Why in the world do you think they're bothering to do this? Why are they chasing the money? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you hit it already with your question. Yeah, pretty clearly, I think, you know, I think for years they've been arguing to advertisers, look, look at all this attention mm -hmm. we're getting. Look at all this viewing we're getting. Look at all the hours of content people are consuming. Shouldn't you be spending as much on this platform as you are on the traditional one called television? Right. To which advertisers say, eh, no. Exactly. <laughs> well, listen, I think it's a... Uh I think it's a pretty smart move, uh, and and it's really, it's really kind of all about the deal. If mm -hmm. you think about it, how did they how did they get all these parties together, and how are they serving all their interests? You know, it's funny because one of the articles that you sent that I read said that the goal, at least according to YouTube executives, was not so much to lure older viewers away from cable subscriptions, but re rather to coax younger people. Yes. Into paying for a, a package of linear TV channels yes. for the first time, right? Well, I don't believe that. Not for one minute. I don't believe it. And because I don't believe it, in my mind, the only thing that's going to prevent them from being highly successful with this launch is its inertia. It's people's reluctance to pick up mm -hmm. the phone and to deal with Comcast and Time Warner Cable and try to figure out how to cut the cord and do all that. You know so, what I mean? Wait a minute. So are you saying you believe that it's that their objective is not strictly to bring new younger viewers into the subscription mix, but also or equally to capture older viewers who are already in it? Oh, of course that's what it is. Look, <laughs> I looked at this $35 a month and I see what mm -hmm. they're offering and I said, wait a minute. I've got Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. I've got Netflix. Mm -hmm. I can get this for 35 bucks. I should just call up Comcast tomorrow, right? And cut the cord. And then my mind mm -hmm. goes through what's going to happen if I cut the cord? How much does my internet fee go up if I cut the All of this inertia, mm -hmm. you know, everything that creates this m making me stay in one place, 
that's what overwhelms people. I think someone should create like an online, I really believe this would be successful, some online place uh, where you forward all your information on things that are complex and confusing, insurance, mm -hmm. cable bills, mm -hmm. we'll call it inertia.com. <laughs> and then what these people do is they do nothing but optimize it for you and then take a percentage of the savings. I think that would be like a killer, <laughs> killer website. But see, Tom, that very inertia is why I think their argument holds water because that inertia is going to marginalize at least, minimize whatever the uh, erosion from um, uh, the unplugging from the traditional system for older people that have been plugged into it for years. And that inertia doesn't exist for younger audiences who have never uh, subscribed in the first place. And the idea, especially with the sports content, I would argue, the idea of saying, wait a minute, $35 a month and I get live sports? I don't need to subscribe to cable? Um, this is actually a pretty good deal. Yeah, no, it seems like, a no it, it does look like a no-brainer, doesn't it? I mean, especially if you look at because this is the future. You've got internet streaming, live local broadcast feeds, a sports channel or two, right? Mm -hmm. And then you add on, you know, what, what you love. If it's Netflix, if it's, you know, HBO, Amazon Prime. But this is big, Mark. And it was kind of buried in one of the articles. It said in there that Sunday football games are going to stream to YouTube TV as well. Right, right, right. Huge. That's huge. Because people don't want to pay for another sports package. Right. And they don't want to lose their sports. <laughs> yeah, so if you're a heavy sports fan, that alone might be an inducement for you to do something like this, especially if you're younger. And again, you haven't, you haven't created the circumstance that creates the inertia. This is really, really attractive. And then again, now to your point, though, I'm really wondering what the nature of the deal is because it's hard to imagine that these particular players can sit around and construct a deal that's as favorable for them as the status quo, right? I mean, if in fact some of these older people do defect to this new platform, it is hard to imagine that the financial deal for Disney, for example, is going to be better than the deal uh, that, they're, that they have right now. Unless, of course, the genie is simply out of the bottle, they're watching this erosion happen, and they can either play in the sandbox or watch the sandbox happen without them. Yeah, that could be the case. I mean, if you think about when Amazon started selling books online, right? Everybody, every retailer out there resisted. Mm -hmm. The publishers resisted. Everybody created problems, and, and it didn't matter anyway. So you look at one of the players in this deal is Comcast, which is interesting to me, right? Because Time mm -hmm. Warner Cable is not a player in this deal. Right. So somehow they got Comcast involved. Now, Comcast owns a lot of other properties. Mm-hmm. So they probably looked at it and said, look, over time, something's going to happen anyway. Let's cut this deal with all these other products that we own and see if, if somehow we can transition to the new while not losing much of the old at the same time. That's going to be the game. I think what's so interesting also is that the, from YouTube's perspective, I mean, this is just a flat-out win. Because they have single-handedly here kind of redefined. I mean, historically, when I say to you, let's watch some live TV, the last thing on your mind is, yeah, let's go to YouTube. Yeah, exactly. Right? So now they have 
overnight changed that. They have been relatively unsuccessful with their premium product, YouTube Red, and now they're able to slide all that YouTube Red content into this package, which includes the live TV, which is the, the, the bridge to their content in the first place for people who are interested in live TV, and essentially redefine television as something which includes on-demand, which includes YouTube Red, which includes YouTube. So YouTube now becomes not this platform to watch kitty cat videos and, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Whatever else is silly, but it, inclu- it it is redefined as the new television. So video becomes the one thing that includes television rather than the thing separate from television. And it's one thing in one place, one platform, wherever you happen to be, um, which is really solves a problem on the broadcast side as well because they all have this bumpy transition to these mobile platforms and here's um, uh, here's YouTube which is accepted and used across all those platforms. It's just a, a, a great deal it seems to me for YouTube and um, maybe a deal that couldn't be resisted for the broadcast partners for all the reasons we know. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I don't know how exclusive this deal is with YouTube. And, and if it's not, then I'll make a prediction with you. By summer, we'll see something coming out of, from Amazon that mimics this deal mm-hmm. through through their Amazon Prime and through their, their, their little box that they have. Because people that have that box are going to have to, if they want to watch this programming on their big TV, they're going to have to get one of these Chrome sticks. Right. Right? That's right. And a, and a lot of people are kind of hooked on their little box. I know I'm hooked on my Amazon box. I don't want to go buy a Chrome stick and unplug Amazon. Well, from, so, the, from the perspective of the networks, um, they would celebrate that, right? Oh, absolutely. So yeah, the, the networks, more the merrier, right? <laughs> and then it becomes a battle of gargantuans. Is, uh, who's going to throw the bigger weight? Is it YouTube? Is it Amazon? Is it Apple? Um, all of which is great for the network partners, right? Oh, they love it. The exactly. other thing that I think is interesting about this, it, the fact that, and this is something you've been talking about forever, that all the, uh, facets of video coalesce under this one platform called YouTube, um, it makes me wonder, when will the same thing happen for audio? We still have these silos in the audio space. You know, podcasting sees itself as one universe. Radio sees itself as one universe. Uh, online radio sees itself as one universe. And, they, you know, there are things like Spotify that... Yeah, there's music and there's podcasts, but look at the iTunes universe. Mm-hmm. You've got a podcast app that is that is segregated from the Apple Music app. The two experiences are completely disparate. So at some point, I think, someone in the audio space with scale is going to have to look at this and say, well, gosh, if moving images are all part of the same platform, then maybe audio is too. Yeah, and but what? where's the platform? Because that would be the key, right? Is the platform the car? No, I was talking about the the the, the technological platform, no, not the I place. What, I understand what you're saying, but but again, like I like I said, I honestly believe this is this is intended to hit the big screen in your living room. Of course, and the more importantly, to your point, the advertisers which favor that big screen. Exactly <laughs> right. So 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 my question comes back to what do the advertisers in the audio space favor as far as you know, that platform that people are receiving the message. Is it the car? Um, the, the, I guess the biggest money there would be uh, radio, and right. the biggest platform for radio would be the car. So, yes, it would be the car. 
But before you even get to the location, you've got to get to the platform which makes listening at that location possible. And that's right. right. Now, that's that's you know, right. And uh, interestingly, um, and ironically, maybe the one that's best positioned, although it's not nearly there yet, is the one that has radio in its name, iHeartRadio. If they really get it together and put all these pieces and, you know, pull down the barriers between these uh, silos, uh, they may be better positioned than anyone thinks against someone like Apple, who is kind of, again, in this segregated world of spoken word is one universe and music is another. Very interesting. Well, listen, they can do it. It's purely strategic. I never expected that this would come out of YouTube, YouTube TV. But look what happened. Yeah, look what happened. Good point. You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Is Martin Scorsese too risky for Hollywood? Forget about it. (laughs) I love it. Tom, um, Martin Scorsese has a new movie coming out. It's called The Irishman. It's, as as, um, The Atlantic puts it, as close as you can get to a box office guarantee for the famed director. It's a gangster film based on a best-selling book about a mob hitman who claimed to have a part in the legendary disappearance of the union boss Jimmy Hoffa. Robert De Niro's in it. Al Pacino's in it. Joe Pesci, Harvey Keitel. It sounds like a movie from 20 years ago, doesn't it? <laughs> I can't wait to see it personally. I know, he can't wait to see it on a big screen. But guess what? The film is going to Netflix, which will bankroll its $100 million budget and distribute it around the world. Now, interestingly, according to this article, the movie started with Paramount. Um, the fact that a Scorsese movie, and one this expensive with a cast this stacked, is opting to go to Netflix rather than one of the major studios is an indication of something seismic. Until now, big directors have avoided the company, afraid it would doom their films to be uh, only seen in people's homes because Netflix um, will not um, put movies in theaters in advance of right. Uh, their release on uh, on Netflix the way Amazon will. Exactly. But with Scorsese aboard, that could begin to change. And Thompson of IndieWire, I know Anne, who broke the news of the Netflix deal, noted that the Irishman had long been planned as a Paramount production, yet because his most recent effort called Silence was a bomb, mm. Paramount, quote, Paramount is not in the position to take risks. <laughs> I love Fair that. You're, you're in the movie yeah. business. I know. There's nothing but risks. I love this. This way, he can make the project he wants. Yep. There's no better (laughs) indicator of how much the film industry is changing than the fact that a Scorsese gangster film starring De Niro, Pacino, and Pesci seems risky, and Netflix is the safe haven to make the big-budget picture of your dreams. Tom, what say you about that? No, listen, I love this article, right? Because, okay, so so Scorsese's uh, latest movie, Silence... Mm -hmm. Okay, it's a bit obscure, right? It, yeah. It's, it, it's slow. It's long. Sometimes it's difficult to watch. Uh, was it beautifully shot? Oh, yeah, it was beautifully shot. But when people go to the movie with someone to mm-hmm. watch a movie, they're looking for a hell of a lot more than beautifully shot on a mm-hmm. big screen. Mm-hmm. So whose misstep was it? See, I think because Paramount doesn't really understand what drives moviegoers to the big screen. Mm-hmm. They confuse their misstep on this movie, Silence, with some strange value analysis of Scorsese's talent and appeal or something. You mm-hmm. know what it would be like to me? It would be like hiring Al Sharpton to give a talk at a conservative fundraiser mm-hmm. and then attributing the poor turnout because of Sharpton's speaking skills. <laughs> I mean, really. They, and so now Paramount, they pass on a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. This is a no-brainer. I, I look and I say, wait a minute. 
Scorsese. I'm, I'm thinking of the character. I'm, you know, like the, the plot. The and I mm -hmm. said, wait, The Departed. Mm -hmm. The thing that comes to mind is The Departed. The Departed had a similar budget. Goodfellas. What about Goodfellas? Yeah. Well, yeah, okay, but the more recent one is The Departed, yeah. right? So let's. So their budget was around ninety million, not a hundred. Okay. Close enough. Yeah. It grossed how much worldwide? How much? I, $290 million. Yeah. Yeah. And guess what? It won four Oscars. Best yeah. picture and best director included. So That's, why would you, why, why do you look at this as it's a risk? I'll tell you why. Because somebody got beat up because of, the, of this silence movie. <laughs> and they don't want to get beat up again. <laughs> That's <laughs> uh, that's so likely. I can't even say how likely that is. So the, this article goes on to say there's a chance that the appeal of, of Scorsese would be enough to break the embargo big theater chains have imposed on Netflix releases because obviously the theaters say, look, if you're going to release this on Netflix the same day as in the theaters, we will not take the movie. We need some advance to make our, our, our money first. Yeah, but maybe not, right? Well, I mean, it's unclear if, if that's something Netflix even wants. After all, the primary purpose of these investments is to draw subscribers, subscribers right. not to make money in cinemas, of course. You know, they, and, and, if, and needless to say, Netflix puts the movie in a couple of theaters in December and it qualifies for Oscars. And, um, you know, that's all they need to do. And for this particular movie, in, especially, that kind of a move might, uh, might be all it needs in order to uh, get the consideration it deserves for Oscar. Um, the only other thing I thought about this that was interesting was that, you know, would um, theater chains, would this be enough to break the embargo that big theater chains have on this? No, absolutely not. Of course I mean, not. They, they don't care about Scorsese per se. They only nope. care about the release window. That's right. So only if filmmakers change their mind, because this is what's keeping it back. It's not that the theaters won't take the movie. It's that the filmmakers want to be on the big screen. So that's why it's effective at all. It's because the filmmakers say, you know what? Let me go to Amazon because then I'll get on a few big screens first. That's the catch. So what Scorsese's move really does is it may induce other filmmakers to say, big screen, schmig screen, you know? I'll go with Netflix I'll live with the smaller window. I'll be able to make the uh, movie that I want. And in all likelihood, more people will see it. They'll release it in a couple of theaters at the end of the year anyway. I'll qualify for Oscar. That's the real danger because I'll tell you, Tom, if the filmmakers start uh, going to Netflix uh, and abandoning the value of the release window, then the theaters will have no choice but to fa uh, fall in line. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and this comes down to whether the filmmakers... You know, that, that quote that you read in there that said that big directors have avoided, you know, going to Netflix, afraid it would doom, the, the words are really striking to me, it would doom their films to mm -hmm. only be seen in people's homes. Right. So the question then becomes, the filmmaker, what is he interested in? So is he interested in getting $100 million in funding to create the movie that he wants to create? to share it with the world? Mm -hmm. Or does he have some other thing in mind, something that says that, no, it has to be on this giant theater screen in order for my art to come across in the mo most powerful way possible? And or, no, I have to have it on those big screens because I know how the industry works and I'll never get an Oscar nod if I don't. 
so it comes down to these people who are making these movies, like a Scorsese, and you know, mm-hmm. what he's really interested in. If he's interested in funding his art and having the flexibility to create and release it to the world, and he's not interested in Oscars, and he's not interested in you know the the giant screen artistic component, then guess what? Here's a hundred million dollars from Netflix. Go create a great movie. Well, that's the thing. And uh, if if there's any artist that wants his work to be seen on a big screen, it's Marty Scorsese. I mean, that exactly. guy knows more about movies than anybody. So what he's doing is he's making an evaluation that says, "Look, let me make the movie I want my way. Give me the resources to make it, and." put it in front of as many people as possible and still allow it to qualify for Oscars by dropping it into a couple of theaters in December. All he loses is that advanced uh, opportunity to be seen by uh, regular people on the big screen en masse. That's all he loses. Now, theater owners think, uh, like to think that's critical because that's the beginning of the pipeline that you know creates value for yep. everything that happens, for, for online streaming, for yep. DVD, for television, for sequels, etc. And they're wrong. They, the reason why the value is created there is because they're the first spot for exposure. That's right. Not because they're the best first spot for exposure. No, that's right. Listen, <laughs> we're, we're, dealing, we're dealing with, you know, industry inertia, if yes. you will, right? And maybe that's why we're seeing billionaire geeks like Jeff Bezos at the Oscars, mm-hmm. right? Because he doesn't have to worry about that complex industry social game. All of the expectations and fear and satisfying everybody's needs in getting movies made. And guess what? Neither does Netflix because they don't even release numbers. That's right. And and on the day that uh, the industry decides, you know what, this day and date thing, uh, it's all got to happen on the same day. Netflix is right. Bezos will move in that direction in two seconds flat, and he won't regret it at all. It'll be a perfect move for him. Yep. All right, it's time for Rants and Raves. Tom, what's happening this week? You know, I didn't find a lot other than, so I thought I'd go with the stick on topic with, with the movies and Oscars. And this is a really quick rant. Did you watch the Oscars? I watched parts of it, yeah. Yeah, see, same as me. Yeah. Right? I, did you enjoy them? Um, it, was, it was kind of boring, I thought. I did see right. the very end when La La Land won, and then I turned it off. Okay, see, I fell asleep. I missed the very end. I fell asleep. By the way, but- not only did I see the end, just as an aside, I actually wasn't sure, so I went to the web- the Oscars website, and there it said, winner La La Land. And I told my wife, oh, La La Land won Best Picture. And she said, oh, of course. And that was the end of that. All right. So this year's Oscars, and you know this, put up historically low ratings. I think the estimate was around 33 million viewers tuned in. Mm-hmm. So I want you to contrast and compare that to this year's Super Bowl game, mm-hmm. which drew 111 million wow. viewers. Wow. All right? So more than triple the number of Oscar viewers. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because the Oscars even took a cue from the Super Bowl and they orchestrated their own surprise ending. But that, you know, it, 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 it didn't seem to help. You know me with conspiracy theories. <laughs> Even you don't believe that was planned? Or do you do believe? Okay, very, very good. So, but look, here's the thing. The message is clear. People want to watch drama. Mm-hmm. They don't want to watch people receiving awards for their participation in drama. Yeah. So programmers, marketers, everyone out there, take a lesson 
the heart when designing anything that you hope is going to capture and sustain people's attention in the future. Give them a story, create some drama, mm-hmm. pull them in, and give them a, an emotional payoff and some value that they really care about, and you'll win, bottom line. That's a good point. I saw one piece that said, hey, here's how to get more viewership for the Oscars. And essentially they said, lay the most popular awards out evenly over the course of the show. You let most of the good ones go to the very end, to the midnight hour, and then they're all in a rush to give them out. Um, meanwhile, we got to watch all these obscure <laughs> ones in the middle of the show. It, it, yep. it is. It's, it's wearing. It is. Um, that's a good one. I have a, you know, there's a big movie theme, I guess, uh, this oh, you week. Got one? All right. Yeah, I've got one that I don't know. It's, I don't know, Ranter. I guess this is kind of a rave of a sort, but uh, it was in a publication. It put out this piece that said, Reclining movie seats increase online ticket sales by 50%, Cinemark <laughs> CEO says. And then the subtitle says, It's the chairs, stupid. <laughs> I love that. American movie theater chains are in a mad dash to drive up attendance while digital platforms. Yeah, it actually says here, while digital platforms consumer their revenue. Oh, well, (laughs) we know what they mean. But there is a silver lining. Comfy chairs go a long way. Online ticketing sales for the Cinemark chain have increased 50% in over 1,000 individual theaters where they're renovated with reclining, quote, leather-like chairs. So what's amazing to me about this, Tom, is that, you know, we talk about the content so often. We forget that the content's only one part of the experience. And the idea that, you know, will people pay for better movies? Who cares? People are paying more for the same movie. They just want to sit in a better chair and watch it. And I think this is a reminder to everyone who's evaluating the quality of their experience to make sure they're looking 360 degrees because maybe the key to your competitive advantage is something that's not central to that which you think they're paying for in the first place. Hmm. That's it. That's it? Yeah, that's the point I wanted to make. What do you think? <laughs> it's a no-brainer. Oh, okay. I didn't know it was that obvious. So here's, I had another one, though, and this one's more of a rant. And this you, one's, didn't think it, you didn't think it was that obvious? I, I, <laughs> so this one's more of a rant, and this one's going to make a lot of people in the podcasting uh, vertical very unhappy. Okay, then I'm going to um, tune out right now. This is Tom Asacker leaving Yeah, there the you go. <laughs> leave, leave, because as you know, I've been on stage with you before, and sometimes <laughs> I say things that get me in trouble. I know. So here we go. So this is from, um, there's a thing going on right now you may not know about called Hashtag Tripod. Do you know about this? Nope. Well, this is a campaign uh, put on by a lot of the people in the podcasting space designed to introduce new people to podcasting because the reality is that something like 45% of Americans are unaware of podcasts. They don't know what podcasting is, never heard of it. (laughs) And uh, something like 80% have never, don't listen to a podcast in an average month. And um, only about 13%, based on last year's numbers, listen to a podcast in an average week, which means, in other words, that this thing we're creating right now and the people listening to it are a very very rare breed, (laughs) right? So the people in the podcast space thought, what can we do about this? I know. Let's create this initiative called, in the month of March, called Hashtag Tripod. And here's how it works. During the month of March, the hosts of hundreds of shows 
We'll encourage listeners to introduce a friend, relative, or coworker to a new podcast and show them how to listen if they don't know. Listeners will be asked to share stories of why they listen and their favorite podcasts using the hashtag tripod. Now, <laughs> what? <laughs> tripod, you get it? Oh, that's bad. Here's what somebody at Radiotopia says. As podcast, <laughs> need to help them. <laughs> as podcast fans are such loyal listeners, it makes great sense to reach out to our collective audiences, urge them connect with, to connect with friends who haven't yet caught the podcast bug, and share what makes their favorite podcast so meaningful in their lives, says Julie Shapiro of Radiotopia. Now, first of all, let me say for the record, this is incredibly well-meaning. You know, they're really, really good people, including people I'm closely associated with who are behind this and have their hearts and, and, and minds oh, in the right yeah, place. Absolutely. But, Tom, is this the reason why more people don't listen to podcasts? <laughs> because they're not aware of it or because a friend hasn't advised them to do it? Is that the reason why they don't listen? What do you think? I, you know... I don't know because I've been blasting out to my thousands of subscribers to listen to ours, and they're not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my feeling about this. The problem isn't lack of awareness. The problem is lack of desire. There you go. And, uh, and I know I'm preaching to the converted here, Tom. <laughs> but the problem is lack of desire. How do you overcome lack of desire? You have to make the experience unavoidable. You have to make the experience in the way of that which you otherwise experience. Who else is doing this? Well, a little company called YouTube is doing this <laughs> because they're putting all of their content in the way of all that linear television content you already watch exactly. in the form of YouTube TV. They're not trying to tell TV viewers, hey, you've seen a YouTube video, make sure to tell a friend to hashtag try YouTube. <laughs> and tell them about the significant YouTube video you saw and why it's important in your life. No, what they're saying is we have to integrate the experience. We have to put this content in the way of that which you already do. It's, that's, <laughs> in other words, if you want to solve the awareness problem, just put the content in the way of people's consumption and they won't have to be aware that they're even hearing it, let alone um, that they're that they of what the term podcast means. Yeah, look, and, and to your earlier, you know, rant, make it desirable. The reason YouTube, the new YouTube video service is going to work, is because people look at their cable bill and they say, a hundred dollars a month, thirty five dollars a month. <laughs> <laughs> well, but here's the thing, you know, let's talk about the experience of podcasting. We're talking about a platform which is free, right? Yep. So it's That's an, what makes it difficult. It, 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 it makes it difficult because it's free. It makes it difficult because it, there are so many. It right. makes it difficult because there are technology hurdles, which are significant. So how do you circumvent significant te technology hurdles? You make your content unavoidable. You have to put it in front of people. You can't expect people to go to you. That's why the idea of Mark telling Tom, hey, Tom, you should listen to this podcast. Let me walk you through how. It's just so weak. It's just such a weak way to promote something um, that I, I, I just can't get my head around it. So no, I, appreciate, yeah. I appreciate the effort. I get hashtag tripod, but it is fundamentally misguided. The better tactic would be to say, to take a page from YouTube and say, how can we make the experience of podcasting um, 
um, uh, uh, seamless with the experience of all the audio you otherwise consume? How do we make that seamless? That's hard. You see, this this is this is the problem today. Is that (laughs) if if it were six years ago, then what you would do is if you really love this podcast and you thought it was going to change people's lives and it would really appeal to them, then what I would do is I'd burn I'd burn one of the episodes onto a CD and hand it to them and say, "Do me a favor when you're driving, stick this in there and just just listen to this." Right. Right. But what happens when there's no more CD players in cars? <laughs> so this is this is the hard part of this whole thing is to understand, to your point, how are people consuming audio and how do you put something in their way? Right. Right. You have to put it in their way. And that right. is that involves platforms, cooperation, participation from platforms and where you have platforms that have differing agendas or platforms that aren't. At the, ta- at the advertising table to profit from the category, That's right. you're going to have problems because YouTube's motivation is not because they want to bring goodness into the world, cause no mm-hmm. harm. Their motivation is they want to get a piece of the TV ad pie. So, hey, Mark, you know what? What? Listen, this is good. Think about, what, think about the play on words. Put it in their way. Mm-hmm. See? Not just not just in how they receive it, but what they want to receive too, in their way. Let's, let's put that hashtag, put it in their way. What do you mean what they want to receive too? You mean the device? No, the actual content, mm. in their way. Everything has to be in their way. That's right. That's right. <laughs> because dis- as I like to say, it's not so much about discovery, it's about accidents, happy accidents. Absolutely. And if serendipity. We can, serendipity. And if we can make these, this content a happy accident, that's how you're going to get more people to consume it. Don't start educating people about what a podcast is versus what a radio show is. That distinction will be lost on people who couldn't care less because podcasting per se is the desire of no one. <laughs> content is the desire of us all. And thus, YouTube can go from cat videos to streaming NFL games. That's right. That's right. As they are. Right. That's me to unplug for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at art19.com, Radio Inc., Media Village, Google Play Music, and TV News Check. There's an example. Google Play Music. (laughs) You can get podcasts and music in the same place, Tom. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. Catch up on older episodes at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the Uber producer of Media Unplugged, who has nothing to do with Uber, by the way. <laughs> Jeff Schmidt, exciting audio for media. You can find him at Jeff-Schmidt.com. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.